Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When I asked Slate's Dahlia Lithwick to try to picture Donald Trump's last day in office, she couldn't do it. I feel like, as is often the case in just... (laughs) horrific, abusive relationships. I can't quite imagine yet that this gets fixed. You don't want to get too optimistic. I I, I just feel as though once you give over to the reality that Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani will do absolutely anything, break absolutely anything, burn absolutely anything to win this thing, it's hard to just seed the fear that there's some pathway to doing that. Dahlia knows she's being irrational here. She says she was actually more worried a few weeks back. Now I think he's going to go, and he's going to go clawing the carpet on his way out, kicking and screaming, but go he will. But I, I do think that there is this real question about... Um, You know, does he take off for some foreign land? (laughs) Does he, you know, pardon himself on the way out? In an administration that has broken so many rules, leaving office isn't as simple as packing up a few closets. Leaving the White House makes the president much more vulnerable to prosecution, which up until now, he's managed to avoid. You know how I think of (laughs) Inauguration Day? I think of the day that Trump leaves office as a sort of Harry Potter moment where he's had this like magical protection for the last four years, this charm that's kept him unprosecutable. And that's the day that that charm breaks. I think that's really true. And I think that we're in this weird moment now where – There's an awful lot of Democrats who feel as though this doesn't end well unless somebody is marched off in handcuffs and an orange jumpsuit. Like there needs to be a reckoning and there needs to be consequences. Otherwise, we're just holding our breath until the Tom Cotton administration crimes again. And I think there is another strand of this that says, not unreasonably, more than 70 million people think that Donald Trump did nothing wrong. And if the Biden Justice Department starts gunning for Trump or his Confederates the first week, the country splits apart. Well, because how many potential investigations is the president staring down once he's out of office? I mean, it it really depends. This is the conversation that's happening now, which is... What would a future Biden Justice Department start to investigate him for? But I think that there's this whole theoretical question about who's on the hook for child separation at the border? You know, who's on the hook for um, other uh, lawless actions? And I think that gets really, really tricky. That's where everybody seems to be stuck. 
Today on the show, what should accountability look like for President Trump? And will President-elect Biden be the one who makes it happen? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I want to be really clear about what we're talking about accountability for, because there are ongoing investigations into the president, investigations by people like Cy Vance in New York and Tish James, the attorney general. And then there's outstanding things from the Mueller report, like this idea that perhaps obstruction of justice would be something that could be prosecuted once the president leaves office. What else is there that you see as the most realistic paths for some kind of prosecution that might happen after the president leaves office? Well, I think it's probably increasingly unlikely that there's a lot that's going to come out of the Mueller report simply because we just saw um, the House step back uh, this week. The Supreme Court was supposed to hear argument on the House getting unredacted um, grand jury information, and we've seen that withdrawn. So it seems as though even uh, congressional Democrats are not going to spend a lot of time mining the Mueller report. I do think that the stuff that's still existent in in addition to you know the New York Times investigation about tax and mortgage fraud that happened pre-presidency by Trump and the Trump organization um the election transactions in which there was maybe campaign finance fraud um certainly I think claims of tax fraud uh the ProPublica allegations about um, was there fraud around, uh, you know, the inauguration committee? Uh, I think some of those places, Mary Trump's allegations uh, of fraud, um, some of these sexual assault incidents where the statute of limitations has not uh, precluded them. So I think there's an, an immense amount of other stuff out there. Yeah, when you spool it out, it's just... So massive. And you haven't even talked about the stuff we just saw recently, like the president doing election work from the White House, which is a violation of the Hatch Act. There's a whole mountain of things you could pick over that are absolutely ripe for investigation and possibly prosecution. To understand why the decision to prosecute a former president is so fraught, I think it's useful to go back would you start by talking about Watergate? I think so. I think that that's, that's where we see the template where Gerald Ford makes the decision using this language of healing and you know, gathering the country together. And We're real suckers for that, aren't we? Well, because we don't like we don't like tearing each other's hair out. I mean, I think that there is this feeling that, 
you know, Ford told the nation, quote, our long national nightmare is over, right? And then he pardons Nixon for federal crimes, uh, including uh, involvement in Watergate. And I think that language of, you know, we've been through this terrible, strife-filled time and we were on the brink of uh, collapse and now we come together and heal, that language was the exact same language that Obama used when he declined to go forward, really pushing hard on possible really horrific uh, acts around the torture program. And I think it's not just that we're suckers for this language of healing. I think there's object terror (laughs) that if you go forward and you kind of probe the wound and you poke and prod... You're going to refocus attention on, you know, all of the ill feeling. Well, I feel like Watergate certainly is the template and the beginning point. But at the same time, I wonder if it's like truly analogous to the moment we're at now. Because back when Nixon left office, he did that because of pressure, because of a generalized agreement that he should and he he would be impeached otherwise. And now we don't have a generalized agreement that there's been bad behavior in the White House necessarily. Absolutely. I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, Watergate breaks down. One is, as you said, the country was in agreement that Nixon was a bad actor. And I think um, when Ford, Gerald Ford explained why he did the pardon, he said, to shift our attention from the pursuit of a fallen president to the pursuit of the urgent needs of a rising nation, right? Like a fallen president. Here's Ford saying, the guy's just broken. Let's move on. Whereas now, nobody would say Trump is a fallen president. There's no consensus that, you know, oh, this poor broken man, let's let's move along. I think that there's a real strain of... He's the real president. There's been massive fraud and an injustice was done if it was done to him. So you're right. I think there's no consensus there. I also think that there's a way in which Watergate, to the extent that people thought about Watergate, they thought about really Watergate-specific crimes for Nixon, right? I mean, the bad acting really was around Watergate itself, whereas Donald Trump is so complicated. He entered office just cloaked in criminal conduct, right? He spent his life staving off one lawsuit after another and using this. I think of him like Pigpen. He's got like a cloud of (laughs) this kind of behavior around him at all times. Yeah. I mean, Pigpen, but with this army of tiny little, you know, Charlie Brown lawyers with yellow legal pads, like his entire career has been marked by this Roy Cohn has made sure that I can do absolutely anything I want with immunity. You know, screw the taxes, <laughs> screw the campaign finance stuff. I'm always going to emerge at the other end because I know how to play this game, right? This is So it's not one event. It's not one event. And it's certainly, I think, you know, not only is it not one event, but he was not impeached for the what was considered the big event. And so I think that there's a way in which... Unlike Nixon, I I just think that Donald Trump's criminality is the brand, you know, like it's the brand, a lifelong messaging that law is for suckers that predates the White House, that exists throughout the White House and that will, you know, possibly go on forever. That just feels different from Ford Nixon to me. 
Back with more What Next after the break. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The question I keep asking myself is what should accountability look like for the president and the whole executive branch? Does it have to look like Donald Trump in an orange jumpsuit? Would that even work? Recent history is not much of a guide here. Because even when people have thought out grand plans for moving through some national crisis, they haven't been implemented. Take what happened after CIA officers were accused of torturing Afghan prisoners during the Bush administration. Senators proposed a South African-style Truth and Reconciliation Commission to investigate what happened. That never got off the ground. And then the DOJ declined to prosecute. Even if we could do it differently this time— Dahlia's not so sure it would work. What I keep getting stuck on, Mary, is that you can't do truth and reconciliation without truth, without some first principles around what happened and what didn't happen. And so when I think about a reckoning, in some ways, I'm almost more interested in what if we reinstated robust inspectors general, right, after... Trump has fired all of them, and after he has kneecapped the ability of agencies to police themselves and to report on what really happened. I mean, would it be a good start so that we could see what had actually happened at DHS, what had actually happened at Justice? Would that matter? And I I don't know, but I guess it's part of my larger plea to broaden the scope of this beyond criminal liability for Donald Trump himself, and to think in terms of a much, much bigger toolkit of how could we get to truth? Because I think if we do it backward, if we say we don't care that the country has no shared understanding of truth around anything, right? This is the Obama put kids in cages. This is, you know, everybody uses the White House for their campaign stunts. And I think if we could go in the other direction and try to arrive at 
a shared understanding of where the line is between what is lawful and unlawful, then maybe we back into some kind of shared truth and reconciliation. I realize I'm hearing myself say it, and I want to, like, punch myself because it seems so utterly fanciful that we could ever arrive at agreed-upon truth. (laughs) Well, but it's necessary, I think. And the thing I keep thinking about is a chicken and egg question, which is can we get to that shared truth without a massive investigation? And frankly, I don't know. I think the massive investigation is what forces the hands of people who have been stubbornly, partisanly clinging to the idea that what just happened was okay. Look, any um, criminal prosecution doesn't start with the crime, right? Let's investigate. We don't start at the presumption that these 17 crimes happen and we're going to devote the next four years to charging them and prosecuting them and eventually putting Trump in jail for them. But we start with the what the hell just happened. I think a lot of the things that you might investigate the president for, for things he did in office, might seem bureaucratic and disconnected from real people's lives. Right. But I look at like an investigation into Trump University (laughs) and I'm like, that might actually be something that resonates in a broader way. It doesn't have anything to do necessarily with a federal investigation. But if the goal is to present evidence that we can maybe find some agreement on, maybe we need to be thinking about different kinds of investigations. Right. I mean, the other thing I would put in that bucket is the Trump Foundation, right? That was an inordinately successful, holy cow, they're saying this is a charity. It apparently did no charity. It apparently, like, was passing through money back to the campaign. Uh, That's another, like, very much like Trump University. It's just a side grift, but it looks really bad. And it doesn't go to the heart of these inchoate questions about, you know, what is the emoluments clause? And did the president divest himself of his interest in his business? And, you know, what does it mean uh, that Ivanka got these trademarks? Like, that really feels like you're going after the Trumps for being successful, right? Like, that's the narrative. We, you know, Democrats just want to penalize Trump for being a great businessman. And I think you're right. Some of the, whether it's Trump University or the foundation that gets shut down, I think that those are not investigations of Trump for being a great businessman. Those are clearly long cons and Ponzi schemes that when they're revealed to be such, you don't have a massive public outcry from Trump supporters saying, you know, this was a witch hunt. I don't think uh, this was a fishing expedition. You hear people say like, yeah, that's probably really bad to take money from old people who want to be. And real regular people were impacted. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe there's a way, again, to start from these sideways reforms. Yeah. I mean, there are so many changes that have to happen not through prosecution, but just at the bureaucratic level so that the presidency is protected, so that it is not as open to graft as it seems to be at the moment. 
I wonder if there are a few things you'd point out as you know something that's a norm now that you'd rather see calcified into law. I would just say reverse engineer. What do you do when you have all these acting heads, right, who are not Senate confirmed and who can apparently do whatever they want with impunity? You know, how do we fix that? How do we fix the Hatch Act so that if uh, Trump uses the White House itself as a campaign event, uh, that that there are real consequences to that? So putting teeth into the Hatch Act so that the office of the presidency can never again be weaponized as part of a campaign. So I think it's almost seeing in the breach, and you can actually even start with uh, the self-dealing and the emoluments and the corruption stuff. You can look at the campaign finance laws that seem not to have been robust enough. I mean, I guess we'll see, but not to have been robust enough to tag Donald Trump uh, for, for campaign finance violations. So I think it's going back and seeing wherever there was a soft spot or a weakness and, and bolstering it. But I also think maybe, and, and this is the hard part, is that for me, the real revelation of the last four years, I can't believe I'm going to say the word norms again, but I'm going to say the word norms again. <laughs> and that is to say, you know, we can wring our hands and say, oh, you know, a lot of the things that we thought were law are just norms and the norms are too soft. Hmm. Could this whole conversation about prosecuting Trump just be moot? Like, could he pardon himself in some kind of grand way on his way out the door? It, it's never been done. I think there's a very uh, zealous and sprightly debate in the constitutional law community about whether he could try and what that would mean. Uh, and I guess we should say he could only pardon himself for federal crimes. Right, right. Pardons don't extend to state crimes. Uh, I think there's certainly, you know, as I said, I don't think there's anything that he wouldn't try. Uh, I wouldn't take anything off the table. Whether uh, courts would eventually say, oh, that's permissible or not, I cannot hazard anymore. But I think we should assume that anything that has been floated, including a Pence pardon at the last minute, sure, it could happen. Would it be lawful? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> and could he, could he pardon himself just in a way... Like, even if he's not charged with anything yet, he just, like, kind of gets, like, a get-out-of-jail-free card? He could certainly try to pardon himself. There's a real question about whether it's permissible and the the scope of what he could pardon himself for is also a question. And then there is this other alternative where he leaves office right before his term ends on January 20th, and then Pence has the power to pardon him. And I think this is... Uh, it could cover uncharged crimes even committed while Trump was in office. And then I think that, uh, again, if the question would be, this has never been done, so what could happen? And I guess that's left to the courts. There's two stories to tell here, Mary. One is, this is all about Trump. And 
The other is, in my view, and this is what I took from Mary Trump's book, this is all about all the people that enabled Trump. And to make it about Trump alone is to suggest that Trump was the pathology, he's gone, and now we're all okay, it is time to knit the country back together. It ignores the Bill Bars and the Chad Wolfs and the Kellyanne Conways and the Jared Kushners and all the other people who colluded to make this happen. And so I guess I, I, I'm back where I was on to think about this purely in terms of criminal liability for Trump and three people around him is to miss the fact that there were dozens, maybe more many dozens of people who put these things into effect. And again, I'm not saying that the solution for them is criminal liability either, but the peril of focusing in on Trump himself is that it's not clear to me at all that Trump himself is the problem any more than it was clear to me that Nixon himself was the problem. The problem was all the people who enabled and those people are still still around. And so I just, I hesitate to say that if Trump goes away and lives out his days on a golf course somewhere muttering about how unfair it all was, that we have solved the larger problem of what it is to weaponize the entire executive branch against law itself. I think the the existential error is to think that the problem goes away with Trump. Well, so where do we look to see if this structural accountability is going to happen? Like, are you looking towards who Joe Biden appoints as his attorney general to give you some clues or something else? The central challenge is going to be that anyone, whether it's Eric Holder or Sally Yates, anyone who is a lifer, at the Justice Department is going to tell you the exact same thing, which is the Justice Department, in order to function, in order to do what it has to do, needs to be independent of the president. And that it doesn't matter what Joe Biden says about who the Justice Department is going to investigate and prosecute, because in order to get back to the halcyon days pre-Trump, we need to reinstate the wall between DOJ and the executive branch. And so I think it almost, by definition, the person who will be his attorney general is going to believe that thing. And that thing will be the thing that in some sense will help to protect Trump and his Confederates from what looks like, oh, you're just criminalizing politics. Dahlia Lithwick, thank you so much for joining me. Mary, thank you. As always, it's a pleasure. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts and the law for Slate, and she's the host of the podcast Amicus. If you haven't, you should really check it out. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson, and we're getting some help from Franny Kelly. We're led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. Tomorrow in this feed... Stay tuned for our Friday show, What Next TBD with Lizzie O'Leary. I'm Mary Harris. I will catch you back here next week.